makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power and power. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart and it's good. It's a good day for all of us to be here. And this is First Voices Radio and I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. I'm Teokasen Ghost Horse and this is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio. Now in its 29th year broadcasting in Liz Hill, is a producer of First Voices Radio. You can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as archives on firstvoicesindigenousradio.org. And you can hear us internationally on Savizar Contemporary in Berlin and Potsdam, Germany. Well, the Trail of Tears is over 5,443 miles. It's that long and covers nine states. Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Illinois, Kentucky, Missouri, North Carolina... Oklahoma and Tennessee, and at the beginning of the 1830s, nearly 125,000 Native Americans lived on millions of acres of land in Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, North Carolina, and Florida, land the ancestors had occupied and cultivated for generations, and by the end of the decade, very few Natives remained anywhere in the southeastern United States. And working on behalf of white settlers who wanted to grow cotton on the Indians' lands, the federal government forced them to leave their homelands and walk hundreds of miles to specifically designated Indian territory across the Mississippi River into what is now Oklahoma. This is known as the Trail of Tears. And white Euro-Americans, particularly those who lived on the western frontier, often feared and resented the indigenous peoples they encountered to them, American Indians, quote-unquote, seemed to be unfamiliar and alien people who occupied land that white settlers wanted, and they believed deserved 
their own promised lands. Some officials in the early years of the, of the American Republic, such as President George Washington, believed that the best way to solve this Indian problem was to civilize Native peoples. And the goal of this civilization campaign was to make Natives as much like white Americans as possible by encouraging them to convert to Christianity, learn to speak and read English, and adopt European-style economic practices, such as individual ownership of land and other property, including, in some instances, in the South, African slaves. In the southeastern United States, many Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole, Creek, and Cherokee people embraced these customs and became known as the Five Civilized Tribes. And did you know that Indian removal took place in the northern states as well? In 1832, Illinois and Wisconsin was open to white settlement, millions of acres of land that had belonged to the Sac and Fox and other Native nations. And many of these whites yearned to make their fortunes, and they did not care how civilized their Native neighbors were. They wanted their land, and they would do almost anything to get it. They stole livestock, burned and looted houses and towns, committed mass murder and squatted on land that didn't belong to them. State governments joined in this effort to drive Native peoples out of the South, and several states passed laws limiting Native American sovereignty and rights and encroaching on their ter- territory. In Worcester versus Georgia in 1832, the U.S. Supreme Court objected to these practices and affirmed that Native nations were sovereign nations, quote, in which the laws of Georgia and other states can have no force. Even so, the maltreatment continued. As President Andrew Jackson noted in 1832, if no one intended to enforce the Supreme Court's rulings, which he certainly did not, the decisions would fall stillborn. Southern states were determined to take ownership of Indian lands and would go to great lengths to secure this territory. And thus, the Indian Removal Act continued and continues today. And well... I'd like to say our first guest and only guest is Michael Costello, a name Americanized from an indigenous pronunciation of his language, Gaelic, of which I will not attempt to say. We will hear how he says it correctly. Michael is an Irish Republican activist who was born in Connemara, Ireland, a native Irish-speaking area. And following travels during his early years, including time in Australia and learning about the indigenous peoples in that country, he moved to the U.S. And by the 1960s, settled in New Jersey, where he lives today. And uh, we'll hear more about the situation in Ireland, and that was making the news in those times of the 60s and before, and later into the 80s in the U.S., and Michael became involved in supporting the struggle for Irish freedom. He was a national chairman of the IPOW, Irish Prisoner of War, Hunger Strike Committee during the Irish Hunger Strike in 1981. We're going to listen to Michael here, a little interview that I did a few days ago. and like you to take care and listen carefully because Michael is going to describe a fantastic voyage, a journey that he's taken to become more cognizant as he walks the beaches of New Jersey. Those 5,000 miles that the Native peoples had walked back then, and we'll hear that the Choctaw had gathered the muster of hundreds of dollars to send to the Irish famine, the so-called Irish potato famine. And we'll find more history of this indigenous language from Ireland. And most people don't want to go there, even talk about it, but there is an history in all of us that etymological roots of our language, our blood, our DNA, and I had the honor of talking with Michael. 
And so we'll listen to what Michael has to say. I'd like to say thank you, Michael, for arriving here and bringing this awareness, and especially the plight that you have become aware of with Native people in this in their own land called the United States and throughout the rest of America. And now, Michael Costello. Not too bad. How are you? I'm good. Long years since I've seen you. Yeah, it's been a while. We're still around, though. That's what counts. I know. I was talking this morning saying, um, you know, everybody says, you're only young once, but you never hear you're only old once. (laughs) It's still here. That's what counts, stuff. That's all. Yeah, yeah. So, how do you say your name in Gaelic? Miholo Kushtalo. Thank you. I, I'm really interested in a story about how you've been walking all these, all these times about something you're very concerned of. When you thought about when you first came to the states and heard the plight that Native people are going through, similar with the Irish back in the times of the 1800s. But would you give me, give me a background, Michael? Um, you started out with, I am an Irish Republican activist from New Jersey. And would you just tell us that background story as long as you can, how you got here? Okay. Um, I, we'll go back to 19, we may as well go back to 1936. I was born then. Then we jump forward to schooling. And they, I lived in an area of Ireland called Connemara, and it was quite infamous then. It was, uh, I think people avoided it. It was really, really poor, and we spoke the native language, we spoke Gaelge, and people avoided us. That's all changed now, and people uh, flocked there by houses, the whole thing. But up to 1950, I did all kind of schooling you did, and... Um, going to be good to my mother. She had planned my life for me that I was going to join the Carmelite order. And uh, I had a real problem the last two years I was in a Carmelite school. How was I going to get out of it? And I finally decided there's only one way to do this. You know, you had to go and make a commitment or whatever. No one says, listen, I'm not worthy. And the priest said, nobody's worthy. So, God Almighty, what is this? Nobody's worthy, he says. I said, well, I know I'm not. He says, why is that? I said, I like girls. Everybody likes girls. Come on, this is not going well at all. I had all this planned, and I was the first one up there. See, Kushtula, I'd be the first one up there. So he says, what's next? What do you have next? He says, because I have an answer. I said, I'm sure you do. I said, listen. I said, okay, why don't you take the summer and he said, we'll come to see you at the end of the summer. I will find you. I thought to myself, that's a hint. You're not going to find me because I'm going to go somewhere. You won't find me. So at the time, I just had enough money to go from Cork to Roscommon home. It was It's not long, but it was kind of, at the time it was long. And uh, so I got enough money. I got home and mom decided I didn't fit the bill anymore, so I was kind of given short shrift. So I had to leave, and I went to uh, went to the, a place called Bodnamona. You'll never hear this again. It was a place where they used to cut and harvest turf. Uh, that turf, what would you call it? It's a, a fuel. Thawed. And uh, it was great. So I was trying to get enough money to escape the 
to come here eventually, but I wanted to, first of all, to go to England to get enough money to come here. And while I was in England, uh, I got enough money aboard the morning to get to England. Just, just after two months, I had 30 shillings. And I can tell you, even back then, that wasn't a whole lot of money. It cost 28 shillings to go to England, Birmingham. That's the place we could go the cheapest. And uh, long story short, that was a fateful decision. Myself and a fellow I met tossed a coin in the middle of O'Connell Street where to go to Birmingham and London. And it came down tails, but I said it was heads because we couldn't go to London anyway. We didn't have the money. So I said, okay. And everything from there on, from that coin toss, my life was decided. I went to Birmingham and I stayed with Mary's grandmother, long story short, and my future wife. And so I decided, no, I couldn't stay in England, not even to wait to go to America. So I went to Australia. The Australians were paying people to go there, as long as you were white, of course. And I fit the bill there. That's all they cared about. So um, I finished up in Australia for 10 pounds. And that's all. But you had to wait to stay two years there, and I had no problem with that. Um, uh, am I talking too much here? You're talking just enough. Keep going, Mike. <laughs> and uh, I went to Australia, and uh, I, I got a job the, the, with the Victorian Railways. That's a state in Australia, Victorian Railways. I stayed there two days, and I still remember the biggest clock in the world was outside my window. And we used to start work at nine o'clock. And I asked the guy that was with me, I still remember his name, John O'Connor. I says, John, do clocks go back in Australia? He says, no, why? I says, I've been looking at that clock. I said, it's, it's gone back. So he says, I don't think this is going to work for you. He says, don't worry about it. He says, you can go. And I picked up a newspaper and I seen what looked like a a good paying job. They train you as to be a, a, a boner, a meat, meat cutter. And I found out it was a, they had a great union and they were all over the country. I, this is the thing I need. I said, I have to get in there. And I went in there and everything as I planned, I went around the country, different plants, different seasons, seeing the country and met some native people. And that's the first time I ever met anybody except the Irish that were native to anywhere as far as I was concerned. And I kind of struck up a friendship with one guy up in Townsville. I, um, he was, I thought he was strange. And I says, why are you, why are you hesitant about things? He says, take another look at me. I says, what is there to see? He says, okay, let me put it another way. He says, what's your worst nightmare? I, I don't know. I said, you know, um, I'd have to think about that. He said, no, you don't, he says. If you woke up like me in the morning, I said, that would be a problem as a joke. He said, no, no, no. He says, if you woke up black in the morning, I oh, wait a minute. No, 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 you're, he said, you're going over the end here. He said, this is not. Oh, he said, this is never again. His name was Sands. And I said, why do you, he said, think about it. What would you do when you look in the mirror? I wasn't even shaven back then. He says, so if you look in the mirror, so I says, okay. He says, your life is 
It's over then. The life is renewed, your plans, whatever, it's over. Now you have to deal with something that I deal with every day. Say, so you're handling it pretty well. He says, that looks like that. He says, that's why I don't go into that place there with you. And that's why I want you to bring something out for me. I'm not shy. He says, I can do that. He says, but it's not worth it. And that was the first time I came face to face. I was quite young at the time. And so I began to look at their life. And I never found out where he lived because it was kind of, Townsville was kind of small at the time, but it still was probably, there was no outskirts. The whole thing was an outskirt. But anyway, it it it, it stayed with me and I, I stayed for the season there and I moved on to somewhere else. And I, I don't know where, I don't think, can't remember his name. It wasn't Russell. Anyway, um, Sands and... We separated, but every so often I would run into, because I'd travel in that area around the Northern Territory and meet folks and so on, where meet a, a lot of Native people. And I began to read about them, and I found out one thing, that um, I don't think the racism was as, as, as clear as it, it, it was here in, in, in years gone by. I think it was kind of more accepted or something. It was different, but they used to lock these young or old or anybody, uh, Aborigines up, obviously for no reason, and a lot of them that was the ultimate thing to lock them up, to be locked up inside, because they were outdoor, they were obviously outdoor people and it, it even made the papers that so many of them were committed suicide. This is 19, just after the Olympic Games in 56, 57, 1957. And that was what they were facing, you know, being locked up for nothing if they came into the towns. And they obviously weren't wanted in the towns, but uh, the few of them that I met were was outside. And, and I, you know, that created such something in me. I, I began to notice more and more and more. And, and uh, so... I eventually left Australia and uh, came back and uh, Mary was there. I don't know she was waiting for me, but we got married anyway. And and, uh, and we came here. I came to New Jersey as a pit stop before Mary and my oldest daughter arrived. We were going to go to California. Everybody with any brains went to California. So going to go to San Francisco. And I got as far as New Jersey. I'm still in New Jersey, and that's 1961. So that's a quick look at. at, at, at so anyway, it it, uh, it it I could see what really surprised me was some people I knew very well to be Irish, and I knew where they came from in Ireland, and there wasn't a black soul around. They never seen a black face until they came here. And they were absolutely not just racist, but they felt so strongly about it. I I used to ask him, what how did this happen? He said, How 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 did it happen that you not can't see this? One nineteen sixty seven writes, I remember I went to visit a guy 
in Bayonne, New Jersey, and he was sitting outside on the stoop in the front, not his house, just in the popping. He had two guns. I says, what are you planning? You going hunting? He says, oh, yeah. If any of them show up, I says, who's them? He says, you know who it is. I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to shoot them. I said, you are? He said, yeah. I says, he came from County Meath. I said, where do you get this? And and I tell that story and I told it to family members and they find it hard to believe. But, you know, I, I still, I don't know where that came from. It, it was it that you wanted to get into the society as it was here in America or, or what? It, it was just, it's not born in people because I didn't have it. There's a lot of people I know that didn't have it, but an awful lot of people. Maybe when they came here, they wanted to be just like the way society was at the time. I'm not sure. So uh, then, of course, the war started back in Ireland again. And, and uh, it was uh, it was always my pet fee, the late 60s. And, and um, that took over a lot of time until even today. You know the the the, the story with the, the Irish thing. It's it's just an ongoing tragedy. It's like one of these things, one of these plays. You can't believe it. It's a tragedy, tragedy, up and down, up and down. But uh, there's something we learned is you know um, we like to believe that it, it's dark is just before the dawn or something like that. But we've had a lot of dark days, and but we're still surviving. So uh, that's what I kind of. We're looking forward now to the 24th of uh, April. That's when the rising was in 1916. And that was, you look at a, a point or a period in time and say, that was the moment when it all came together, except that the British kind of reneged and everything. They, there was a rising in Dublin, make it short. And, and uh, they were doing very well in Dublin with the GPO. And uh, they read the Proclamation of Independence. And that's what, that document keeps the Irish Republican movement straight today. That's the document that we, that's the holy grail of Irish Republicanism. And, and uh, that's, we still, it hasn't been fulfilled and the whole thing. And, and uh, what the British learned was they had to pay more attention in Ireland. And if this thing happened, so they took the leaders and they shot them within a week. Court martial, field court martial, they shot them. And they shot anybody that was, um, we'll say the word they use is pragmatic. If you were pragmatic, well, they could deal with you. But if you were like, we'll say the leaders, Pierce, Connolly, and them, you weren't, there was no point in dealing with you. So they shot you. And recently there was no point in dealing with Rory O'Brady. So they dealt with somebody else in the movement. They dealt with Jerry Adams. And he gave them everything they wanted. Abroad, he wouldn't would be nice to him and have a cup of tea with them, but he wouldn't, he just wouldn't deal with them unless they were getting out. And, and that's the problem. There's always somebody willing to take the shilling, but we're going to take the shilling. Michael, do you think that, it, not racism overt, but there was a certain amount of racism um, when the English, you know, the English um, 
exhibited against the Irish? Is that what was there? Or was it just because you were viewed as a lower class? Well, I, I think Seamus Metris, uh, Professor Seamus Metris from from um, the University of Toledo, he's he's, uh, he's still around, and he, him and his wife, and he he explained it in a in a little book I have here that it was all racism as far as the British goes with Ireland, with the Irish, and and some of the things they said and characters and so on and so forth. It was pure racism. And that made it easy when you denigrate your enemy or so on and so forth. It's very easy to not feel their pain. If you keep denigrating them all the time, then when the time comes where you should feel, no, there's no sympathy. You don't have any feeling because they're less than you. They're less than human. That's, you know, what they said about the Irish punch and so on, that that the magazine they had, uh, they have, uh, I'll have to check with Maggie to see is this okay what I'm going to say. When when um, Punch said that the uh, the Irish were the missing link be- between the Negro and the ape, and they always now if you see St. Patrick's Day, they have this little clown kind of a leprechaun, what they call it, dancing around with strange features. That came from the British, but the Irish today buy millions of them for St. Patrick's Day, not realizing where they came from. Yeah. But that's a character of, of of the British, and and that's how well they did their job. Don't forget, Ireland was so close to England; they could always kind of get across there. It wasn't like in India, although they left a bad legacy there too. It was easy to get to Ireland, and the Irish really bugged them. Mm-hmm. And don't forget that I think the four worst people that ever were the Irish would have been Henry the Second, Cromwell. Trevelyan and Margaret Thatcher, down to that. That was, of all the people, Trevelyan was during the entire war, the Great Hunger. And some of the things he did was just incredible. But this little book I have from, from Seamus Metris goes through. And what he does is he takes their, their quotations from that period. And it's incredible. So if you're talking about racism, Although the both races were white, didn't make any difference to the British. They had somebody that was, they considered, and the only British worker felt the same way. I have no idea why, but uh, it did it, it, it. That's it. So that's my story. I don't know where the story is, but that's it. Let's go with that. You became the national chairman of the Irish Prisoner of War. Um, hunger strike committee here in the States. And tell us about that experience that you feel is surreal. Well, we, um, it wasn't the first hunger strike, but it it was the one we thought, and honestly, we thought it was going to bring it all together. We thought it would, you know, there was a war going on at the time. And we thought that there would be so much pressure on the British and we had to do our job. We really had to do our job. And I think that from that time, looking back on it, we had so many, oh, okay, I'll give you an example of how well I thought we did it. There wasn't a Union Jack flying on the East Coast from Miami to Maine. Not one Union Jack, and that's the British, Mm -hmm. the, the butcher's apron they call it. So the Irish call it. So that's, and we had, 
even upstate New York, there was a, 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 a an ordinate committee, right? In upstate New York and the Adirondack. And and there were people on the streets. You you just could not well you you'd be going down yourself at the beginning and it started, we'll say in at the beginning of the year, 1981, you knew it was coming, so you were preparing for it. So three or four people would show up at the British consulate. They couldn't have cared less. And then the time came where they had these, the, the sources or something, or whatever they had, to keep the crowd in. And the crowd was growing as Bobby Sands uh, went on March the 1st, 1981, and he was the first, and he died on May the 5th, 1981. And all that time, the whole thing came out. We were producing literature. We had organized across the country. We had, I think, the, the last one was a unit. We, we, we was uh, San Diego, California. We had organized all across the country. Little towns all the, across the country. So there were hundreds of, of, of demonstrations going on, hundreds. And it's hard to say how much the American government got involved in it, but um, they, they, something happened. A group of new people came on the scene and whatever agreement they had with the older people didn't work anymore. So um, Flannery and, and so on, they stayed with us. They really were the leaders. We looked at Mike Flannery as a, he was a, a pious old guy, but he, he was really, really solid right up to the end. And he could, when he said something, it really was worth it. So we, we had everything going for us, except the guys were ready to die. So we thought, oh my God, the first one is going to die. And I think still, that was the worst day of my life. I, I could not believe that after everything we did, that we did something wrong. I, I couldn't believe it. I just could not believe it. And then four of them, Bobby died in May the 5th, and four more died really, really quickly. And then there was a lull. And we still <laughs> thought that the British were going to do something in this lull. And there were four. There were four died. And... Oh, this was you know, great Irish guys, the whole thing, you know. And to tell you about Bobby Sands, I, I think we have to get that poem that he wrote. And uh, that was an incredible poem. It's, it, it, it's talk, you know, I'll get the poem for you. But then as the summer went by, six more died. And in the end, you began to realize that everyone in this hellhole could die, long cash concentration camp. They could all die as far as Thatcher was concerned. She had nothing. And at the time, the FBI came talking to me about something. I can't remember what it was or something. And uh, they asked me about Thatcher. What did I think of Thatcher? I said, I don't have to answer that question. I said, oh, by the way, I says, I wouldn't worry about Thatcher. And um, he says, why is that? I says, uh, the English people will take care of Thatcher like they took care of the other monster they had, Churchill. He said, what do you mean they're going to take care of her? I said, they'll get rid of her. They'll throw her out of the party. And Congress like was over everything else. It was 
watching my son play soccer one day and this guy in a suit walks across the field and for some reason I thought he's coming to me but I don't know the hell who he is. There was nobody there in the middle of the day and he walked up to me, how you doing Mike? I said, I'd be a lot better if I knew who you were. He said, oh, this, this is great. He said, you don't even recognize me? I said, should I? He said, I think so. He said, I'm Agent Phillips. I said, so who's Agent Phillips? He says, I was the one that kind of, oh, you were the one that spent the week with me back in uh, October 1981. He says, yeah. This was years later. I said, so what are you doing here today? He says, you were right. I said, what? He says, you were right about Thatcher. I said, what happened? Her party got rid of her this morning. I said, you're kidding me. I said, well, I was right. And you knew that. He said, how did you know that? I said, I know the history. And, and uh, it, 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 it just kind of all came back. But she's gone, and the Brits never changed. They never, they never apologized for the great hunger on Thor Moore. They never said sorry once. They never said, I don't know how many people. Some people say, uh, you know, it was four million people vanished from 19, 1844 to 1852. And that, as a kid, is what I learned. Now they have it down to 200,000, maybe. They're whittling it down. and But no, it was that many. There was, and, and the census before, uh, on Thar Moore, it was 9.5 million. When it was all over, it was 4.5 million. And the country never got that people back yet. Then, of course, the country was split up in 1920-21 by the Brits, and the whole thing has gone to pot. So th that was it was that period of time was was uh, I I I couldn't believe it. I just could not believe what lessons there were. I couldn't believe it. The brutality. That's the only thing I could think of. The brutality that some people have, and and no compassion. Thatcher was without compassion. But she died as an Amadon, and an Amadon means like, you know, how would you say my Amadon is? An Amadon is a kind of a senile. You know, I couldn't have cared less at the time what happened to her. So uh, people thought that was great, but it didn't. She did her job. And she did her job for the British state, which was to kill these guys. And by the way, one of the reasons it turns out that they were let die was they would not negotiate with the Brits. They would not negotiate they were not pragmatic. They would not negotiate. But Jerry Adams was sitting there. He negotiated. And we still have the Britain Island. So that's that's a sad story. And, I, you know, I've I seen so much of it going on. I'm wondering, uh, I'm, I'm getting interested in seeing what's going to happen to the planet because how long can this keep going with everything else and... and uh, so you, you, when you're out walking, you have really, I don't wear any headphones, I don't wear, I don't chew gum, I don't do anything except walk. And I think, and you have all the time in the world to figure out things. And one thing I want to do is, I, I, I don't think that, um, I never stressed with the walk, I never stressed the money, raising the money, because maybe that's easy. That's easy for people. But, you know, to make a little bit more of a commitment, that's what I want. But I'm not quite sure how to do it. 
I, I need your help on this. I want them, want, there's a lot of people watching it on, on Facebook, although I, I hate to say they don't watch Facebook that much, but my my Janine tells me, and Nuna tells me, and Martin, and my, my kids tell me that Rory, that, that there's a lot of people watching and they want to help and they want to know where to send the money. Well, I says, you know, they could do something else too. Money is good, but I says, if, if, if they could make some kind of a connection with people, be it on the reservation or outside the reservation, I don't know enough about the Native American history to know. Um, how do we do that? How do people make a connection, make a personal connection with with somebody that's that's um, it's an it's an open prison. Do you know what they did to the Native Americans? They took them <laughs> and hid them in the open. They 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 they're out there in the middle of the country. You could say, well, it's said for everybody, but nobody sees them. And that was the plan, out of sight, out of mind. And it's, it's, I think one of the movies I've seen, I can't remember the name of it, but I remember something he says, the greatest trick the devil ever played was to make, to let people think he didn't exist. And I thought, I got to remember that somehow. But I said, this is the same thing. I don't know, was it Jackson, President Jackson or what? But whatever move it was, it was well thought out. Because where they moved them from, they moved them from North Carolina, east of the Mississippi, and they moved them west of the Mississippi. But they moved them from land that was very well cultivated. They had they had done the job. They had a, a, a beautiful town hall, the, the Choctaw, the whole thing. And they, and they put them into an area where they didn't recognize anything. They put them into a place like Connemara which, you know, you'll be a nice place to visit, but let's get out of here. So that was the thing. No, they didn't have any food. They didn't have any resources, no timber, no nothing. And I don't know, I don't know how they survived. I really don't know how they survived. People are resident, but that's incredible how they survived all this time. But they were put there to be forgotten. And this is the one thing I think that come down from all this walking and so on is, we can't let this go on. We, we have to do something to reach, to find a way to, for the, for the supporters, for the young people, old people, whatever they are, um, they're not necessarily following me. We have to make them aware that this is a problem, that we can, we, we can, we'll do something to, you know, if, if we could get set up a system where we could start, um, contacting people i don't know what you'd call it got to be i'm i'm very aware that that uh, i can say the wrong thing here but um i don't know how how you would uh, what you would do to contact native americans be it on the reservation or wherever and uh, I, what i'm going to do is when this worked out and whatever is um i would like to people will say Maggie, I would like Maggie to make a connection with a Native American and get a ribbon with both names on it, and we will attach it to a, in the future, a ceremonial pole, and we will take you on the walk with us. 
that's that's very the rough rough thinking but something like that i think it's symbolic the the, the ribbon or, or, or how does that sound these these are all great ideas michael and i think most people listening now on the radio would want to understand what made you become aware of what happened to the Choctaw Nation, the, the Chickasaw Nation, the Cherokee Nation, the so-called five civilized tribes way back in 1848. And what made you become aware of that? Because you seem to have come into the awareness of this recently, but also because of your your own involvement of, your, of the people, the Irish people. And now you have been walking. Tell us about the walking part. Um, oh, the one, one thing is, is I, I forgot, it's very important, is I, I read a number of times over the years, and could be back in Australia, read it first. In 1848, in the, at the height of Antar Moor, and they call the, 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 the hunger, whatever, uh, the Choctaw Nation was on, was being forced to move on the Trail of Tears. Mm-hmm. And they collected $176 for the people in Ireland. And I still didn't get over that. Yeah, and that was the equivalent of today. It would be thousands of dollars. And it, 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 one, again, the dollars is one thing, but my God almighty, the thought, how do you do this? You're being forced to move. You've lost everything. And here you are, you're collecting money, and you have no money. They'd obviously, there's pennies here and pennies there. To send it to Ireland? And and uh, I don't know. This is part of your, your walking as you do daily, and you send how many steps you've taken that day, just to bring awareness to that. And people listening want to understand where... Um, where they where they can help basically, and you have several. Um, you said you have um, have have reached out to the to the Navajo Nation out in Arizona, but also that you are going to walk ten to twelve miles per day, perhaps, in your goal of five thousand miles. And I think this needs to be be covered not only in Irish newspapers but in Native American papers too. So we will try to put you in contact with that and have them listen to this and see what they can do with it. Um, but I do need, do know that there is still that out in the open policy um, with Native people. They're called reservations today. The poorest people, the health problems, no water, no running water. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, all these these things that are going through for hundreds of years now, probably as long as the English treated the Irish as badly as they did and still do. This is untalked about, unspoken about. Um, and you only hear the good side where we get are getting along with the government, U.S. government, and that's what is praised by the American people, that we're doing it the American way rather than all the beautiful cultures of Native America here that still have their languages and are still trying to live that way that is not so much out of England or even Europe, because we have our own way of thinking, just like your people, the Irish people, have their own thinking. And I think that that is to stress that awareness that you're bringing about, that the indigenous, the indigeneity that we have 
is quite common because your language, I think, the, the Gaelic language has to do with that enduring uh, nature within the language is how you treat the land is how you treat the people. And I think that's what we're trying to stress as Native people to the Americans, in this case, to the white folks who have come and still hungry for their land, still hungry for the goal, still hungry for progress, but we're still saying, you know, earth can only provide so much. I love the fact that you are, you are walking because of that awareness. I want to give you kudos for that, Michael. And I want to ask you one more time, is there anything that you, you feel it's important to bring together, not just the sympathy, but the compassion that people share, as you do, from another country about what you found out that this country has a, what we call America's greatest secret is the treatment of Native people on their own land called reservations. Well, the the treatment went back a long way because I, I discovered while I was in Australia that they were taking the young Aborigine kids. Now, this sounds familiar, of course, and probably you know it already, and putting them in to, they weren't convent, but building schools. And the first thing they do, they shave their head and then force them to wear clothes. And the same thing was done to the Native Americans at the same time. So this was not kind of a, a shot in the dark. They knew what they were doing. It was there from the master colonial, the Brits. I know there were other colonial powers too, but I mean, they have more to answer for than anybody, but that's not why I'm here today. But this is what they did. And, and um, it was definitely an attempt to eradicate the culture, the language, the customs. Mm -hmm. It is the same thing in Ireland. And of course today, the Irish would say, oh, you can't be bothered with that. We have other things to worry about. Now, you'll always have other things to worry about. If you don't worry about that, you'll always have other things. So, I mean, that's what we're facing now. Actually, to a great degree, the British were successful with what they did to the Irish people. Uh, there are some great people in Ireland, but they don't seem to get into the leadership positions. And if they do, they're bought off. And that's one of the greatest problems I know anything about any other race, but the Irish have, is they seem to still look to the invader as being a step above. I, I, I don't understand what the history and whatever, some people just cannot want to see. Most people don't speak the language. I'm a native-born speaker. I teach Irish, I have a class tonight, and and uh, I'm doing what I can. So, you know, I don't think it's a whole lot, honestly. I, I, I Just walking, it's it's uh, I'm used to it now, but um, it, it, it still can be not just a drag, but you get up at five o'clock in the morning and you look out and so it's not very, very, what do I say? How did the Choctaw do? And how, how did they do with the baby being born? You know, what did they do with the bodies? They'd leave them there. They couldn't dig. Did the seventh camp just kind of say, all oh, two and let them bury their dead or what? I don't know. And yeah. one of the guys I'd like to know more about him was uh, General Phil Sheridan. He said, and he was quoted quite liberally at the time, 
The only good Indian is a dead Indian. And it was all over the papers, was all over the news everywhere he went. And his parents were from County Cavan in Ireland. And that's what he said. And it was well accepted. He may have been involved in the in the first march to a point of at some point. So it it, it goes back, it, it goes both ways. Indeed, so. indeed, Michael. It's been a pleasure and honor to talk to you about your concern and your care for not only yourself, your people, the Irish, but the native people here. I'd I'd like to I begin this program speaking in my language, but I'd like to ask you to say some good words in, in your language, whatever you want to come up with, um, so that people understand that these languages are endangered all over the world. These indigenous languages are needed so much more. And I think that's the awareness that you are bringing coming from this indigenous point of view, um, that this is this will keep our people culturally significant with earth, not so much the system, but who we are is our language. So would you give us some words to of encouragement in your language? Magalior, Magalior, Tashogahinta Kavak Kanslat, let's Yokusan in showing you, Augusta Sulukum Gamaisil Nishorvi, Munjaguhi America, Augustamajanashadis. It's you know, thanking you and the Native Americans for listening and uh, hoping things are going better for them. Okay? That's great, Mike. Magalior. So on that. Thank you. We say this is the power of of radio that's going out to that people think is not power. Radio is powerful. And if if it all were to go down, radio would still be there. And I think that's what we need to bring to people. But thank you, um, Michael, for being here. And that was Michael... Costello, and again, I cannot say the Gaelic way of his name, which is would be an honor to say it correctly, and I don't want to say it incorrectly, so I honor that. And his progress, Michael, Michael um, is able to come to you and post it regularly on his Facebook page, Irish 4, the number 4, Irish, the number 4, Navajo where he also highlights the plight of Navajo once again, this time in the face of the current COVID-19 pandemic, who also had their own forced walk the Trail of Tears in the mid-19th century. And uh, he's been walking, Michael has been walking on Thanksgiving Eve, begin that walk, the walk he does daily on Thanksgiving Eve in 2020 of last year. And this is First Voices Radio, and I'd like to thank you for being here. And my name is Teokasin Ghost Horse. Yes, stay tuned for more great, great programming here on this local station that you hear. And also, when we understand what is really going on in the world, we have to listen to others who have a different story. Look how long the line of people They stretch from horizon to horizon. All right, let's move it on here. You people over there, let's move it on. My wife is very sick. I I don't know what is wrong. Would you call your doctor, man? Lieutenant, what's going on here? Major, there's some sick people here. Move them out. Move them out, Lieutenant. 
but but major i they're very sick they're only indians move them out everybody keep them moving no one stops if they stop leave them on the side of the road we've got a long march move them My grandfather told me that from the beginning of the march to the end, there was not one part of the trail that did not have tears and blood. Not from fighting, from walking. They took us to a place called Oklahoma Territory. Many, many of us never ever reached it never ever reached it hey lady you you and your baby come on let me help you into the back of this buckboard come on it's covered. No one will see you. Come on. Thank you so much, soldier boy. Thank you so much. I don't think we could have walked much farther. Thank you so much, soldier boy. What are you doing there, Private? Oh, nothing. Just closing the back gate of the buckboard, sir. Very good. Move them out. Here, old man. Take some of my sourdough. I've got plenty of it. They give us soldiers a whole lot. Here, take this bag. Take it to your family. Please, I have to go now. I have to go now. I have to go now. Lieutenant, get that Indian boy off the back of your horse. What the hell do you think this is? Get him off that horse. I think his leg is broken, sir. They're only Indians. They know how to walk on broken legs. Get them off the horse. Sir, off the horse, Lieutenant. Yes, sir. Come, little boy. Down off my horse. Major, the old woman just died. Should we stop to bury her? No, we should not stop to bury 
any of them. Do you know how they bury themselves? It's inhumane. They'll learn how to be good people when we get them settled on the reservation. I'm sorry, my husband. I cannot go a step further. You must. If you stop, we will die. You must come. Hold on to me tightly. 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 We must. Trail of Tears, as narrated by Kenny Littlehawk, Dennis Eury, Gus Benzini, The Hawk Project. All kinds of 